0: Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. Hello,
1: hello, and welcome, listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's business channel. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery, and today we're joined by a very special guest, uh, John Blank, the Chief Strategist for Zax Investment Management. Uh, John has been with us uh, several times. We always have a, a really uh, scintillating conversation about the market and about investing. Uh, so, John, uh, welcome uh, from L.A. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for getting up. Uh, I guess it's not that early for you, but uh, just around uh, time to enter in the office, I guess, right? Um, so there's the office as far as uh, yeah as far as your I don't know, your den or something, right? Right, right?
0: <laughs> anyway, okay,
1: so John, uh, we've got plenty to talk about, uh, and a lot of it you had kind of gotten to already. There's a couple uh, really important pieces that I think most of our listeners should be aware of. And one is your monthly market strategy piece, uh, which comes out basically, right after the non-farm payroll report comes out from the BLS uh, once a month and um, it's very comprehensive. We talk it up a lot. Matter of fact, we give out uh, free copies for people who call our 800 number and listeners, I'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, But uh, what I found very interesting about it this time, John, was uh, you got into the idea of how can the U.S. bull market run so far so fast. So uh, what would be your, your, your quick answer from that? And then we'll go on from there.
2: Mark, yeah. I mean, first of all, everyone needs to understand how far we have gone relative to history. And the S and P 500 valuation, when you look at earnings that are looking looking to happen in the next 12 months versus the price of the overall index now, called the forward P/E ratio, price to earnings ratio, is 17.7 right now. 17.7. What would so the historic, historic average? The average is uh-huh. 14.3, Mark. So what that tells you is 3.4 on 14. We're looking at a 25 or 30% premium to Mm. history for this market. That's a big number. It's even bigger when you realize that U.S. economy, GDP growth, for the first quarter of 2017, right now, is now coming in at less than 1%. And that is not very strong growth, and you have a big premium for the forward outlook. So... That's the question we've got to answer. What on earth is going on and whether this is something we should be believing in and holding our money in the markets or getting out or, or just not even being concerned. So my first thing I'll point out, Mark, about this situation is that in the fourth quarter of 2016 and the first quarter of 2017, we have seen back-to-back earnings growth, about 4.9%, 5%. Yeah, you know, year-on-year earnings growth. For the first time and in first about two years. We've uh, seen uh, back-to-back earnings growth in
1: almost two years. Right, right. Yeah, right. So, so that's, that's obviously a big thing. The main reason
2: it's probably happening is we've p- finally put together two strong quarters of earnings growth. And it hasn't happened in two years, so the market finally has a bid. And this, it's really about less risk, not more return. It's, it's really about this idea that, God, it's, it's, there's no real downside right now versus a lot of upside. The second thing I'd point out to people is the Republican constituency on Wall Street. And what I mean by that is that the big, big funds that put big, big money to work are often run by Republican uh, thinking and Republican people. And their excitement and optimism with the new administration is palpable, and I do think they are putting money to work after that election. I think that's the second reason.
1: That's the, the Trump reason, route.
2: Mark... Um, Is a different idea. It's more of an economist idea. And that's the deeper lending growth rates across the U.S. economy. Now this is an idea that that an economist looks for because you want to say to yourself, if if I'm getting banks to lend into all the different nooks and crannies of the U.S. economy, Mm -hmm. that's telling me I'm going to get the growth eventually because bankers are smart people and they're looking at balance sheets and they're looking at, they're talking to companies and they don't like to lose money. So, if they're putting the money to work and you see good numbers and growth rates and lending growth, that tells you something is very strong. So, here's a quote, a set of quotes that came from me from a very respected group in Albany, in New York, that tells you just a little bit about what's going on. First of all, they said the Federal Reserve policy remains accommodative. Even after yesterday's rate hike, it does. That means money's flowing in from the Fed. The performance of monetary variables remains sound, and the pace of bank lending. While it has slowed some, it's expanding at a 5.7% pace. That number's interesting. Now, I told you 4.9% earnings growth was happening. Now, all of a sudden, we get 5.7% lending. That's, that's consistent. That's what you like to see, that the lending is consistent with the other types of growth that are coming from the actual economy. Bank lending to business has slowed some, but is expanding at a sound 6.7% rate. There's a good number, bank lending to business. Real estate lending has slowed some, but is expanding at a sound 6.3 percent rate. Again, good number. Consumer lending has slowed some, but is expanding at a sound 7 percent rate. And that goes on and on all the way to leading indicators, monetary growth conditions everywhere around five and a half to seven percent across all these different spectrums. I mean, consumer lending, real estate lending, bank lending, the Fed. All this is telling us that. In fact, this is why that 17.7 is okay. There's plenty of liquidity out there. The Republicans are excited about the future. They run the big equity firms, And we've got back-to-back earnings growth for the first
1: time in almost two years. Okay. Well, as we, as you mentioned, uh, touched on, anyway, the Federal Market Federal Open Market Committee raised interest rates another quarter point. This is the third such raise in 15 months. Um, what I found kind of surprising, or maybe not surprising, but interesting about this was Chairwoman Yellen's comments afterwards, where she indicated that future growth from things like corporate tax reform were not considered in the undertaking the the rate hike. So all of that future growth has not been priced in by the Fed. In other words, is that correct?
2: Well, I think you know. The way to look at fiscal policy, which comes from the Congress, the Senate, and the presidency, is that it's, it's an outcome of that negotiation. And Frankly, it's, it's really done by the Senate and the House, not the President. Even though the President issued his budget these last few days, it goes to the Senate and the House. They basically have the constitutional authority to do this. So the point is, until all of these things are approved, which is months from now, and the negotiations go on getting there through the committees and into the House, there's plenty of time for the Fed to adjust their decision-making based on what what actually happens. The other thing is you have to understand that what's being said and what will be done will be netted out in GDP growth. So the Fed's going to know from their own GDP accounts what's going on with tax policy, what's going on with spending policy. They're going to see it probably within a quarter or two of when it actually happens. And they're not going to be surprised by it, because they got to get approval from the government, and the government doesn't just turn around the next day and start spending They pen probably a quarter later. So the point about the budget and the, and the whole Trump-anomics thing is, like she said, you get got plenty of lee, you know, leeway and, and forward-looking and ability to change course as that comes out. And frankly, I think they're right in thinking that it's going to be a heck of a lot less uh, notable than
1: people think. it would be less notable than people think. Well, I, I, you were bringing up GDP. We see it in, in Q1 numbers so far, unless they've changed recently. Uh, still, we're under two percent for the quarter. Is that true? That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm yeah, saying. Right. I
2: mean, that's not the four percent number he threw around in the in the campaign. It's not even close to the three percent number the Treasury Secretary says he can get in the in the in the at the end of 2018. The end of 2018 is, you know close to over 18 months away. So, uh, you know, between then and now, we're doing muddle through growth. And the Fed has to think about all of these interest rates in a 12-month uh, window where it's 12 months ahead. So it's basically saying by the early 2018, we don't want, even if you do some more spending by the in a few more months, we don't want to be behind the curve. As we're getting this rate hike out there. and We're probably going to do another one in June. We're probably going to do another one in September. That's what the dot plots were saying. And they're saying, also, well, the key thing about the whole statement from an economist's perspective and why you have to be a macroeconomist to appreciate these directives that come out, because these meetings are run by really, really high-level macroeconomists. And what happens here is in the – in I have with colleagues at Zachs who do this. They think, oh, I know what's going to happen to rates. Oh, I know what's going to happen to the dot plot. And then what happens is really this third – additional language in the press conference that clarifies it called symmetric targeting of inflation well that's a mouthful but that's what i mean by macroeconomics that is a discussion about this idea that maybe we're behind the curve and maybe next year we'll get some inflation because we're behind the curve oh no so that discussion happened at this meeting and the decision was to make this statement into the commentary about symmetric targeting and what that means is if you're doing 1.8% inflation and your target is 2% inflation, you're 0.2 below your target. Now, if we get a little hot here and we push inflation, consumer inflation rates, over 2%, let's say we go to 2.2%. Suddenly we get news out of the market, oh, 2.2% inflation. Over the Fed's targets. Now, what they have done is they said that's symmetric, meaning if we get a one8 or a 2.2. We're going to treat them the same. We're basically on target. So what that does is, if they get a little run over in inflation because of what they're doing, they're good with it and they're not going to change course on it. That sent the 10-year Treasury down yesterday. So everybody who was calling what we already called, which was the rate hike, or calling the dot plot move, which was already telegraphed, missed the idea that the real dialogue amongst the macroeconomists was to insert the symmetric language which then created the understanding in the market that this is a pretty dovish statement, that they're going to let some inflation happen, and that was good for the stocks, and that's why we saw the bull market run yesterday.
1: Right. Oh, I see. So just even in that short amount of time that we we, we saw a direct effect from that. Because normally you'd see a...
2: Like immediately, almost within half an hour, because the bond markets have higher economists from the Fed. Uh, you know, equity like markets, I'm kind of a, you know... Uh, a leopard, you know. I'm kind of I'm going kind of out of my world, right? But in the in the bond market, they how you treat them. With the Fed, and they read this stuff very fast and move very quickly.
1: Right. Well, you also touched on what I was going to bring up next, and that is the the dot plot. Uh, more specifically, what so more raise, more interest rate. Hikes are likely, and the over-under had been, going back a few months now, three for the for 2017. June it would be March, which is the one that just happened, then June, September, and I guess maybe uh, there's room for a fourth one in December. Would that right. be... Well, that's, the, the, that's, the,
2: that's the little window we won't know about and they're leaving themselves open to, which is maybe they hike in December, based on what they're doing now. And the way, But people did not understand what the language dot plot. What, I want to explain this to people. Dots sure. in the Federal Reserve... There's a federal open market city has, I think, 12 people who sit on the committee. That's why it's called the Open Market Committee. It's a committee. Right. And each person shows up with their forecasts for what they think rates should be going forward. And so each of those forecasts is, quote, a dot. And they assemble the dots into a dot plot for 2017, 2018, 2019. So they say, basically, they say each 12 regional Fed president's How many rate hikes are you going to think about in 2017? How many in 18? And they put three, two, four, whatever. And that summary of all that is called the dot plot. Now, why this matters is what you get in the news is this idea that three is where they're at. Now, truthfully, only four or five of the 12 regional bank presidents put a dot at three. But that was the mode. That was the most dots. So then everybody gets the news: oh, the dots are at three. What I mean by that is there were dots up to five and down to two. And you can watch the dots and see how many people are stacked up at these various points to get an idea of the consensus on the committee itself about what's likely to happen. That's the other thing to do is actually go look at a dot plot. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you can get it online. I do it. And I don't think people, when they hear the language, they really connect the dots and realize you can actually do this. And they'll show you online, you know, where the dots were last. Meaning versus this one, and how they've stacked Who moved what right around? How much? How much more probability this is to happen? Getting that into the game with yourself is a good, is a good lesson for someone who's an investor who really wants to think about this a little better. I, I really recommend doing that.
1: Now, when we see a lot of transparency too with the um, with the Yellen and, and company, uh, as opposed to let's say Alan Greenspan from a decade or so ago, right? I mean, right. we, we used to get a lot more opaque language. It would be uh, people's business to just parse through uh, what words were spoken. Uh, but speaking of that, um, well, actually, I wanted to, to, to get into something else. We really only have a few more minutes. So uh, I wanted to kind of maybe just uh, just wrap up this whole thing. So you're we thinking right now there's still uh, more likelihood for three. Uh, what what potential things might derail this? Uh, if, if we were kind of – it was baked in the cake for March already, what are things that could happen that might send the June – Uh, FOMC meeting to not raise rates?
2: Uh, That's a really good question. Um, I would say the main thing that can happen between then and now is some type of political event with this presidency that is uh, shaking the confidence of the markets and that they feel they need to rein things in or build things up. I, I can't say what that would be but the Russian investigation of the president is certainly at topmost you start to get really really huge clues of something really did happen and a much more likely a scenario of some type of uh you know movement on the part of who runs the country that that can do it the other thing that could happen is something like the oil prices you know they're staggering around because the um, the rigs are coming back to the fracking Field, and they're coming back at a lower cost per barrel. They basically, you know, geared down uh, the amount of rigs. I mean, yeah, the rigs were 1,500 back in 2014. They bounced to 300 back in June of last year. Now they're at 650. So we're not even close to being back to 1,500, but we are double from where we were last summer. And I don't likely think each rig is countable as the same because you probably bring back your really low cost ones first. So the low cost frackers are doubling. The problem you could see here, um, is oil prices collapse. And, you know, the, the, the Saudis pump too much oil, the frackers get online too quickly, and oil prices collapse to 15, 20 bucks in the next few months, which is another thing that can move fast and get shorted down quick. And then we already saw last year in February that that can take the stock market down 10, 15 percent pretty quickly. And mm-hmm. that would be the other way this could blow up on us.
1: Okay. Well, very interesting. So, uh, you know, I think we're just going to take a a short break here in another minute or so. And uh, I wanted to say to everybody who's listening to the program right now, for more information about how to best invest your assets for retirement, uh, call Zach's Investment Management right here in Chicago at 800 918 Three one one four, And there you can discuss at length your risk levels and investment strategies that are best suited for you and your family. Uh, for more information, you can email us at info at zimwealth.com. That's Z-I-M for Zacks Investment Management, wealth.com. Also, visit our website, zimwealth.com. And also, for that 800 918 number, uh, we will send you a free stock market outlook, which is written by our guest today, John Blank, the chief uh, strategist for Zacks Investment Management. Very comprehensive report. And uh, we still have another. Okay. And so, uh, so, and then, John. Also, your background too. PhD from MIT. Uh, a, a economist. You've been working in a number of different fields and everything. And we're we're, we're happy to have you here at Zacks. We're going to take a short break, John. And uh, and stay with us. And listeners in at VoiceAmerica.com's business channel, please stick with us. Uh, you're listening to the Steady Investor. Thank you. comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network
0: the steady investor show is brought to you by zacks investment management a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers at zacks we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation Zacks focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning, or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan. Give us a call at 1-800-918-3114 or to learn more, go to info at zacks.com. Again, that number is 1-800-918-3114 or go to info at zacks.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice. Is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor.
1: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back to the second segment of The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. You know, we have so much fun on this show, when John Blank is the guest guest host. Uh, we just keep talking right through uh, when when we go away for a break and everything, so we're just – we're constantly talking about all this kind of stuff. So, so John, thanks uh, for sticking with us. So we're going to keep going. Um, we're talking about interest rates. We're talking about the probability of there being uh, three. Uh, we're currently on the dot plot right now. Um, in terms of what President Trump and the GOP-led Congress wants, things like the travel ban, health care reform. These things are hitting some snags, John. So, does this tell you something about the tax cut timeline? Such as that might be something that uh, that uh, uh, bolsters growth. Uh, going forward that that might not happen until 2018 or so
2: yeah, I think so Mark I mean I want to put out for our listeners um, a a paradigm from political science that I uh, think helps clarify how this any presidency really runs and uh, this one certainly runs this way and that is first of off you've got base driven politics and what that means is you're trying to serve who elected you? So the Republican voter is more important than maybe the only thing that's important in this type of scenario. So base driven politics says, put out stuff that the Republican base that put me in office wants. So that's the basically the the the, the, the immigration restrictions, the Muslim ban, all these things that we're talking about, bigger stronger military. Those were base driven. Base driven mean that's what people voted the guy in to do, and that's what. That's a whole crowd of, you know, the, the Steve Bannons, the, the campaign strategists, they do this. And, by the way, Obama did the same thing when he got into office. He put through his health care plan when he had both houses in his hands, and he kept his base happy that time. So base-driven politics has nothing to do with one or the other party. It just has to do with this idea that the first thing you need to do is be powerful. And once you're powerful, you've got to keep your people happy. That's base-driven politics. Now, in the midst of all this, as time rolls on, and as you appoint people who are not part of the campaign, and you see this with the Trump administration, you put in the Wilbur Rosses, you put in the Steve Mnuchins, you put in the uh, uh, Gary Cohns, who was the chief operating officer of Goldman Sachs, and there's many more Goldman Sachs alumni now in this uh, uh, presidency. That turns into the Goldman Sachs way of thinking, which we is sort of the Zach's way of thinking in many ways, which is what I will call objective-driven politics. Objective-driven politics is to solve a business objective or a clean idea. So raise the growth rate of the economy. You know, do this through taxes. So the objective is to raise the growth rate of the economy. <clears throat> and that's what Gary Cohn is stalling out at. And people say, well, we'll wait six months for the tax policy. Well, that's objective-driven politics. Because Gary's going to sit down with the Goldman team, run econometric models endlessly and come up with a set of taxes that he thinks gin up the growth rate. And this doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen easily, but it's objective because it's actually trying to run the whole economy, not go to just the voters that got you in power. Now, any administration in a democracy like ours is going to have a mixture of both. And that's just always the case. So the problem you have here is when you look at health care reform, you look at tax reform, you look at the strong defense story, you sort of, The story the today we're going to cut 60 programs down to nothing. Well, now that's going to bounce to the Senate, bounce to the House, and then go through this mill of these different teams who are going to battle with each other for power. One is the base-driven guys saying, God, we're going to lose our base if we do this stuff. And the yep. objective-driven guys are going to say, you know what, if we don't do this stuff, we're not going to get our objectives done, the growth rate, the, the you know, the jobs, and all this other stuff. So. This is never ending, and it's always a, a, a process that you're going to watch. And the sausage is never very cleanly made, frankly, and that's what that's we're right. going to see here for the next few months.
1: Okay. So, but if we don't see the big reforms to the tax code, for instance, in 2017, do you foresee that market participants re, they might be reevaluating equities as being too costly at current levels?
2: That can happen. That is one line of thinking. Um, now, that line of thinking is difficult, because, you know, we, like I said back in the first part of this call, my three causality points, I didn't say the constituent Republican interest on in Wall Street was the number one reason. I said it was the number two reason. The first number yeah. reason is the end of the earnings recession, which is a fundamentally driven macroeconomic event, and that it may be all we need, regardless of what this tax thing does. I mean, I frankly was running... Just to give you an example, I was running um, what's called the earnings yield of the stock market over, if it's 5 to 5.3%, which is well right above historic average. I mean, these stocks are still coming back from the big downturn, you know, 5, 8, 10 years ago. It took a long time to drive that earnings yield down
1: That's to where
2: right. we used to be, around 42 So you actually leave $127 in earnings, and you take an earnings yield of 5 to 5.2%, you get a fair value for the S&P at the end of the year at 2500 regardless so the only thing that's interesting to think about, Mark, is does politics matter? <laughs> yeah. it's not clear it does, I think people have to check that at the door until we see it, and it's probably in hindsight that we'll understand it, not in foresight, because it's not clear in this environment where we're at multi-decade lows and unemployment rates, the global economy's turned around, and they're still not running yield to just drain out the whole uh, idea that the stocks can go up to 2500 on their own the market can see that anyways and just keep running even if the taxes
1: and all the trump things don't work out with growth right because the actual there's real organic uh, growth in the markets, right, and and and, and right. companies' uh, earnings. Yeah, that's right. That's a very good point. Um, let's uh, switch over. There's another thing uh, that I always look forward to. Usually, it's on a Monday morning, uh, it's called the Global Week Ahead, and it's a report that you write. Uh, it's not uh, super long or, or overly comprehensive, but it does it gets to a lot of different things that are going on around uh, the globe, and it is well, it's comprehensive in a way that it does cover a lot. And I found um, a lot of things interesting in it in this past week. Uh, European election results. They shine some light on global markets, obviously. And for now, it looks like um, certain things that we saw in Holland. Uh, I think what was it yesterday? Uh, there was election there. Um, we don't see the right-wing protectionist uh, winning streak that we saw with Brexit. Um, arguably, the Trump election. Uh, it looks like it's come to a temporary halt in Holland. Do you have, think this has any effect on Europe in general, and maybe in specific uh, companies? Or, sorry, countries like France that has another has a similar objective coming up in a couple months.
2: Yeah, first of all, to our readers, I need to tell you that uh, Mark Vickery, uh, the Global Week Ahead is my training for Mark Vickery. The rest of you are just kidding, <laughs> but I really I really use it to train Mark Vickery. <laughs> it's working. But in light of that, I want to tell you a little more about um, this idea that I have about the Brexit in June last year, the presidential election in November of last year, and now we are in March, which is not even a year later, nine months later, and we see um, droves. What happened in Holland that's really interesting is what didn't happen in Brexit and what didn't happen in the United States happened in in Holland, which is the young people came out in droves to vote for the future. Hmm. And in Brexit... The areas of, of England, up near this Boston area, up in the northeast corner of, of England, where there's lots of older people, basically swung the Brexit. And in the United States, we know the same thing, the rural voter, the uneducated voter, and the older voter, most importantly, the older voter voted in for the Trump administration. In hindsight, now, Europe has the benefit of seeing both of those election results and the young people realizing in Europe, looking over their shoulder, going, you know what, we gotta vote. We gotta make sure we get in the game. And if you look down the pipe from here, Mark, mm-hmm. to France, there's a centrist 39 year old economy minister. Economy, okay. minister of the economy, uh, industry, and what's called digital affairs, which is the computer stuff. So someone of his generation, with knowledge of this knowledge economy, is now the leading candidate to be the French Prime Minister. And that or the President. So that's telling you that it's taken two swings at the bat for the young people in the world to realize they got to get involved in politics. And that that is the big takeaway from the Dutch elections. And that and frankly I think that's great news. Because it really is time for the governments of the world to be run by the same people who are basically in the economy, not the older people running the economy while the younger people work.
1: That's a very interesting point. Uh, so you're saying that you think that this this it was a temporary uh, situation where we saw protectionist uh, elections kind of going forth, and it looks like that might be, uh, well, actually, so what what does that mean uh, for the European uh, growth? It's been an albatross around the global market for a long time now. Do we think that maybe they're finally out of the woods, and does it have anything to do with these elections? I'm not sure.
2: Well, you know, let's get started so Macron gets elected. Yeah, there's no question France has been one of the sclerotic growth centers of Europe. And it's really been kind of, you know, tanking around, you know. And on the right, you had this Falon guy who who was conservative, got discredited by all of his scandals. On the left, Hollande, you know, the lefty prime minister was so unlikely. He had like an 8% approval yeah. rating. He, I know, he, it was how, terrible, he didn't yeah. run. So, what this tells you is that this whole base driven politics where the left does what the left does and the right does what the right does, just ground the pieces out of the growth rating in France, because there was no basically objective-driven politics where, look, we've got to get the growth rate up. So what's interesting is you get a 39-year-old economy minister, he is objective-driven guy, economy minister. He's a guy like me saying, Mark, we need to get the global week ahead out at 6 a.m. on Monday morning. It's objective. And I don't want to hear you telling me Oh, John, you know, the base, you know, I don't know if, you know, you're in my base. I'll do this other thing first. I'll do this second, the last. No, the objective is to get the thing done and put everything aside. So that's what's happening with Macron. He is going to clear the decks in France for an objective of growth. And he's got the energy and he's got the new base of young voters behind him. That, in my opinion, is the revolution that's really coming. I don't think... U.S. politics are in anything but a four-year mode right now, and I'll be very surprised if we don't join this tune in four years, because I think all young people are really going to get a wake-up call and realize, hey, we matter, we got to vote, we got to be our government, we are the ones who are alive, we're the ones who are running the country, we have to do this, it has to be synced up, and they're going to sync it up.
1: Okay. Very interesting. So let's. All right. So we were in Europe there for a while. Let's uh, move on to other parts of the global economy. Uh, the Bank of Japan issued a policy statement, and uh, what was the what was the rate that was assessed? Do we do we have a figure on that? Uh, I know you were uh, you were saying that the negative negative 0.1 percent overnight rate was uh, going to be looked at. Uh, I don't know if we have anything on that right now, but um, there was that. There was the Bank of Indonesia, the Central Bank of Turkey. I guess that's is that Asia or that's Asia Minor. Right anyhow uh so where where else in the global marketplace do you see uh, see progress being made?
2: well one one thing that's uh I would say you know looking around um, currency land, uh, yeah, which is a very very obscure market for most people, but i I've been looking at this this week, and what I've learned, and I think people need to understand is the Federal Reserve system is the only central bank. Uh, maybe China is the other one, uh, but really, other than China, is uh, hiking rates. So the world is basically sitting flat with really, really low rates, and the Fed is hiking rates. So what happens when you widen gaps between parts of the world that are not hiking rates and parts of the world that are hiking rates is that stronger the dollar gets. The, 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 the people who have higher rates have more incentives for buying the bonds because you get you get higher interest rates. So the money goes to where the higher interest rates are. That's the basic idea. Money goes to where the higher interest rates are. Relatively Mm -hmm. speaking, so the dollar is getting stronger everywhere. And it's really getting strong against emerging markets, places like Brazil, South Africa. Um, These types of places, uh, Mexico, those big countries... We're seeing calls for 21 on the peso and the, and the 5 and 6% moves down in the in the real. And South Africa, you know, really struggling and depreciating their currency because money is just getting sucked out. The same is true with China. For all the strength and everybody liking China, I think it's the future. It's money. The yuan rate is going to break 7 this year, get to 7.1. We've not seen a, a cheaper yuan for some time. And what that's going to do is the Fed is going to actually end up giving the ball to cheaper manufacturers in China as a part of the way we're going to restrict growth in the United States. So that's what's weird about the situation we're in is the channel of transmission, what's called the channel of transmission, is through the interest rate to restricting growth in the United States. So when you say, God, we're only raising interest rates to 1.5% in the United States, that is entirely true. But what really matters here is, as we assume with the U.S. dollar, it can move 5, 10, 15% over the next year. In response to this, is all the money gets sucked into the United States from these other parts of the world. And that is going to benefit the rest of the world from a fundamental perspective. But as investors, we've got to learn how to hedge off that risk if you buy ETFs in these countries. And frankly, it's going to hold off on any bull market happening outside of the United States as long as this type of thing is going on.
1: That's very interesting. So even though we are seeing some GDP growth in other parts of the world, we're also seeing the, the, the U.S. dollar is so much stronger that it's still sucking out uh, investment from these other countries then, right? And that's still going to benefit. So, but it's not going to benefit us necessarily in trade, but it will as far as investment. Is that? Do I have that right? Yeah, that's basically it. I mean, it's
2: higher rates money sucks out of these countries. You can just think about it. You know, when we talked about the lending growth earlier. It's coming in here. There's deep and liquid... Back, backing for all, you know, all those multiple channels, and people are just not putting money to work in these countries out there. And uh, it benefits us, but it hurts us, because you know benefits us with deep liquidity. We've got a lot of cheap money, but uh, it hurts us because we, we're getting a stronger dollar, and it keeps on getting stronger and stronger, and that is working against the administration's motives of, you know, creating, you know, U.S.-made products and shipping them abroad, because it's getting harder and harder to do that with a, with a stronger dollar.
1: That's right, because it's harder to compete uh, with people that can charge pennies on the dollar for uh, for labor and, and that sort of thing, right? Right. Um,
2: this is what we got to think about. Uh, you know, this sort of conundrum of how do investors handle this versus how do countries handle this, and again, I mean, that's a very different answer when you look at
1: one or the other actor. Okay. Well, hey, John, we're going to take another short break in just about a minute or so, and I wanted to remind our listeners of the SETI Investor uh, that for more information about how to invest your assets for retirement, call Zax Investment Management right here in Chicago, 800 918 Three one one four. You can discuss at length your risk levels and investment strategies that are best suited for you and your family. Uh, for more information, email us at info at Visit our website, uh, which is also ZimWealth.com. And to get an, uh, your free stock market outlook from Chief Strategist John Blank, uh, that's the same number to call, 800-918-3114, highly recommended, comprehensive report on what every investor should know about the, the marketplace, both domestically and abroad. Um, so let's see, before we go into the next segment, we still have one minute left. So, uh, John, let's let's do some uh, uh, some closing thoughts on this. I think when we come back from break, what I want to do uh, is talk about um, the U.S. story emerging um, uh, on an uh, industry-by-industry basis and, and kind of get your quick take on each one of those. I think that might be kind of fun. Uh, but but in the meantime, let's, let's close off what we've got here as far as uh, growth uh, globally versus growth in the U.S. and any anything that we need to, any pearls of wisdom that we need to take away from that.
2: Well, I think, you know, first of all, the growth in the United States is looking at 2.3% in the latest reports for 2017, and it, it was 1.6% in 2016. So that that direction is bullish. And that, that gets back to that earnings growth story we talked about earlier so the bottom line is regardless of what i said about it, exchange rate and all this stuff netting out to the growth rate which is always what you gotta do get a net net to the growth rate see if right. it really happened the call is still bullish for the united states okay and in turn you know outside the united states uh things are holding up pretty well around three and a half percent
1: growth okay well you know let's hold it right there we're going to take a short break and uh please stay with us you're listening to the steady Investor, sponsored by zach's investment management From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
0: The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zacks Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zacks, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zacks focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, Give us a call at 1 800 918 3114. Or to learn more, go to infozaks.com. Again, that number is 1 800 918 3114. Or go to info zax.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor.
1: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
0: You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Yes, welcome back to The Steady Investors, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. This is the third and final segment this week. Um, Mitch Zax is off this week, and we're joined by special co-host John Blank from Los Angeles, chief strategist for Zax Investment Management. Uh, John, it's been a pleasure uh, talking with you so far. So uh, what I want to do is kind of get a hot take from you on uh, industry by industry, which ones are the most attractive? Which ones are the least attractive for investing in at this particular uh, point in time? So, um, you know, if I just threw them out there, you'd be ready to handle them. I'm, 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 very confident that you'd be able to do this. You ready? Yeah. Okay. So the first one we've got here: uh, info, information technology, infotech. Um, we are yeah, attractive.
2: Know, the, the main right, information technology. A couple things to point out here is this is the most globally exposed, non-U.S. exposed sector, meaning a lot of production and spending happens outside of the United States. And it's a strong area to find a good stock. And the area you want to look at is the semiconductor industry. Um, these are the chips that put themselves into computers, into cell phones, into automobiles, into basically everything now, appliances, okay. everything. So take a look at semiconductors. That's a hot industry. It's stayed hot for years now.
1: Right. That's right. Um, Okay, so great. Um, How about general materials? Materials have been attractive, and they will remain attractive.
2: Um, The way you want to look for a material stock, if you're looking for one, and and my my large cap trader does have one or two of these, steel and metals non-ferrous, meaning iron ore. Okay. Non ferrous, as ferrous as iron and metals not ferrous is not iron. But basically, steel, iron ore, and, and metals that are not iron, you know, copper, zinc, uh, lead, these types of things, are where you can find a bid, and the reason is China. The PMIs in manufacturing, as we spoke to earlier about the Yuan breaking seven. As the U.S. raises rates, the Chinese yuan is going to get cheaper, and that's going to make manufacturing pick up there. And you want to play the steel and metal and metals not fairest game because it's the old thing with China: buy what they buy, sell what they sell. Meaning they are buying materials, so you want to buy materials.
1: Well, that's interesting because that's not exactly where I expected you to go with uh, with discussing materials. I thought we were going to talk about things like construction, uh, maybe even domestically. Um, would that still, does that still hold yeah, that, for? That
2: falls, Mark. That construction is is in industrials, basically. Yeah, and right. Okay. We we do see construction, building services, and metal fabricating, which is making ducts and pipes and stuff like that, which is all construction related. We do see the bid on that in the United States. That's coming off of the what's called a late cycle situation in the United States. What that means is we've been expanding. When you expand an economy you you exceed its previous size. And when you expand an economy, the first thing you come out of recession, you just you soak up unused capacity. But when you get an expansion, you have to add capacity. And when you get in a late expansion, you have more and more you you try not to do this stuff, but you gotta spend the capital expenditures and the buildings and the equipment because you're the expansion is pushing you out beyond the capacity you existing have existing so this is where construction is getting a bid right now and we're seeing this really strong because the expansion is really old and the unemployment is really low so you can say gee i really now have an incentive to finally get my act together and raise my machinery expansion raise my building
1: expansion and then this is what we're seeing at this stage of the cycle Okay. Um, well, here's, a, here's an industry that has been uh, it, basically fallen hard times for a, for a while, and uh, maybe it's coming back. Uh, you tell me, a consumer discretionary.
2: You know, you always got to like that, that area. Um, yeah, I think if you're looking for a play, again, I would look in the home furnishing appliances. I think you're still getting a bit out of the, the home ownership, and I would say leisure. Uh, always leisure, uh, particularly this summer, and particularly because stocks are up. Consumer discretionary is what it is, discretionary spending. And a lot of times, stock market booms, like we've just seen, cause more consumer discretionary spending. If people have a big stock market portfolio, they feel better, and they go out and spend it on a boat. They go on a vacation, this type of thing. Mm-hmm. So um, that's where you got to like consumer discretionary, and you got to like these types of products that are going to remodel kitchens or send you to on a timeshare to Mexico and things like
1: that. Okay, so does, is that usually a near-term uh, bump for, for an industry like that, or is it something that might, we might be able to look toward uh, for a while? It should say there, as long as stocks are up, it'll keep going. I mean, if you think the underlying thing is
2: just 401ks and, you know, feeling better about the economy and having more money in your savings, driving it up, and typically consumer sentiment drives up with stocks. It's almost one-for-one.
1: One. Okay. So the way that right. is the stock market goes down. Got it. That makes it easier to understand. Um, So we talked a little bit about oil and gas uh, prices. How about energy uh, as an overall industry? Uh, Where are we at as far as um, whether or not you'd recommend looking there?
2: Well, you know, I think uh, the coal-trump trade is probably coming off. I wouldn't jump in there now. It's been played out. Uh, I think, you know, you've got um, the drillers coming off the floor. Um, Mm -hmm. I personally don't really think energy is a great call right now. But it's certainly contrarian. And I think, you know, the argument I read this morning and I agree with is you can buy the big oil companies, not because of their any effect on oil prices, whether oil prices go up or down now is not the relevant thing. The relevant thing is they went from 90 to 50, and these guys survived. And what happens in a situation like this, when it's oil, is you take your cost down. These are lean and mean companies, and they're learning to compete in the lower price environment. And that's the reason you buy oil. It may not be the case, energy-wise, that oil prices in energy companies, oil companies, are correlated. That's, that's actually a myth, and that's true now. I've, I've watched this pullback in oil, and I've seen some of the large-cap uh, oil stocks move up or go sideways. They, they really don't respond as much as you think.
1: Okay, that's interesting. So well, how do you put this in light with um, the OPEC agreement from late last year uh, and subsequently well, people were saying uh, people they're, they're still going to be producing more than ever before, U.S. fracking, uh, more oil uh, enters the markets, the supply clots really not going away as fast as some people were predicting. Is that correct?
2: Right, and that's it. And then all the supply was really seeing is people downshifting their cost per barrel. You know, they're saying, look, you know, we've got to live – this new world, these were fat companies at $95 a barrel for those six, seven years. They were fat. They were lazy. They did projects. just, You know, if, you made, if oil was costing 70 bucks a barrel and you could sell it for 90 you did it. Now, you only do those really, really rich projects that have $20 a barrel oil on, on hand if you do them. And that's what's going on now. So the whole mix is shifting to these real high-end, very low-cost projects.
1: And those are the companies, the Exxons and such, that have been really historically well-run for a very, very long time.
2: Right. right, and they are the ones that can bid for the really cheap oil production and have the money to put to work and get the cost down and all like With that
1: With the economies of scale and that, right? I understand. Right. Um, all right, how about financials? We just saw an interest rate hike, so how are the financials doing these days?
2: Uh, you know, they're doing pretty good. Uh, not as good as people think. I, I hear the problem you have is um, just the amount of lift that's already come out of the, the stocks themselves. I'm 16 70% earnings. Uh, levitation, not le- earnings but stock price change. So if a stock's been moving sixty, seventy percent over the last year, how much more of that is in play? Frankly not much. So I'm I'm kind of a seller to really, really, really rich financials just because of the stock prices have run so far. But the the underlying fundamentals do remain attractive. And if you want to look for financial stock, you want to look for something with a little hair on it, meaning, you know, some problems that can be resolved by Better overall situation for the financials themselves, and but I do think you got to look a little harder and work a little harder to find stocks now in the financials because they've run up
1: so far. Okay, and this is all based on the well, let's call it the Trump rally for, uh, for lack of a convenient term. Um, that's that, that that's what really raced up over the past uh, four months or so. Is that correct? More than anybody, right. um, more than any of the other industries. Uh, how about uh, so we were talking about industrials a little bit back with uh, materials? How are industrials looking uh, from a, a current viewpoint?
2: Industrials are, well, you know, they're fluctuating around. We've yet to see this big ex boom that everybody's talking about. Um, you know, the, the real good quantitative analysis of Tim Nyland's group at Jack State is that they, you know, we're looking for that ex boom sometime this summer. I think by the end of this year, we're going to see it. I think, you know, that the problem here is... You got to buy it before you see it because that's how stocks work. So you're gonna probably have to get in and pick up some industrials now just because you have to believe it's gonna happen. Because people buy the news, and they sell the they sell sell the fact, and the fact that it shows up, you're late to the game if that happens.
1: All right, and we're talking about machinery, construction, building services, that sort of thing. Is that correct?
2: Right. Yeah. You got to go in on weakness and buy them up on this idea that there's gonna be some turn here in the next six months, and that confirms itself, and when it happens, and so that's how stock picking is. You gotta you gotta decide you're gonna believe in something way before it happens. If it happens, then it's in the news and people are just selling the stocks to take profits out of them once it happens.
1: And it's already been bid up and you can't make any money off of it, right? Right.
2: Um, yeah, that's so, what most retail investors don't understand is by the time you hear something good, you should be selling that buying because You're already
1: buying up, Like the banks. Right, uh, right. Really like, well, the banks been up 70% the last year. They're selling that. It's a selling, not a buying thing. It's kind of like what Mitch Zach says. If you're if you're reading an article in the Wall Street Journal about a particular thing, it's too late. <laughs> it's already been written about. It's already been you know traded on. So it's already right, done. It's, it's that's
2: it. What, I mean, it's you know, it's like hearing news and thinking you have an edge when you've got 15 million other people who read it too.
1: Right. Right. Okay. So utilities are is an industry that's been has had been had a hard time. Oh, well, let's face it. You know, uh, what, is it? Is it getting better for utilities now? Uh, where Where are we? On that industry well here
2: this utilities business is regulated so the profits are always there people like the dividends um i I don't think utilities ever have much offer on offer as rates rise because you have corporate bonds and other places to put money and bank loans and you know basically preferred stock all this stuff looks a lot better than utilities anyways so i think they just get sold off in this environment but again that's something that's already happened. I'm not telling you that's something that's not already happened. And, right. and the question you have here is, where is that in the process? Where is the new-new thinking about utilities? And the new-new thinking has got to be out somewhere in 2018 that rates are probably going up 2% from here, and they're really going to get sold off. But maybe there's some bull case that says that's not going to really happen for some other reason, and you can buy them instead sell them.
1: Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, move on. We only have three minutes left or so. How about healthcare? Where are we at with that industry right now?
2: Healthcare, fascinating situation. They've been blasted to pieces for and shorted for a good two years on this uh, on this idea. Basically, on this idea, they were overvalued. Now they're undervalued, and the question is, when do people buy them again? Particularly the biotech companies and the drug companies. And. Mm. The other thing that's both bullish healthcare right now is not the president talking down uh, drug prices, but the pre- president talking up uh, 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 corporate profits repatriation from abroad. I mean, places like Ireland were built on the pharma industry getting good deals for taxes out of the Irish government, and there's trillions of dollars of drug profits parked trillions, and I, and I didn't mean the word T trillions out of the United wow. States. So. If we get a profit tax repatriation bill through the Congress and the House, which is likely. The the trillions of dollars people are talking like Jamie and Diamond are talking about coming back in the country, the bulk of that's coming from the drug and drug companies. And that is bullish healthcare stocks.
1: Okay, so and you say there's a likelihood that we will see some repatriation in this industry, is that correct?
2: Yeah, I mean that's the argument. I, I think, you know, you gotta start buying health care, good quality health care stocks right now because you got to be in front of this thing and they've been beaten to pieces for two years they're, they're one of the fairly good earnings growth areas that are reasonably priced because of this whole beat them up kill them off shoot them and short them thing which went on probably six eight months longer than it should have
1: okay well I don't really want to get into specific talk about specific companies necessarily but maybe uh, the, um, the maybe the larger pharmaceutical companies uh, big pharma or maybe the biotechs that have um uh, uh, it, the, the orphan drugs and that sort of thing. Uh, which which would you, would you have a preference there uh, to look toward?
2: Yeah, uh, you know, I don't. I don't follow up close enough mark to have one. I would just tell okay. you to have to go to our our ranking system and and look to see what the analysts
1: are are starting to like a little better. Okay. And so the last one, the last minute we've got here, consumer staples. Uh, how do you for how do you see this uh, uh, this industry these days?
2: Uh, you know, I'm a seller if I own the, these types of stocks because the price earnings ratios are way rich. It's oh. the richest price earnings ratio. Just from a valuation perspective, okay. there's no gain. Uh, you know, if you look at ETFs over the last 10 years, the pure value, you know, the real cheap stocks are where the most money's made. If that's the case, this is the total opposite of that. These are the real wow. rich stocks that, that don't grow fast anyways, so this is the dumbest thing to be buying right now. Anyways, you should be selling these stuff.
1: John, I'm going to have to leave it exactly right there. I love ending it with a big exclamation point. But thank you very much for spending the hour with us. And for the listeners, A Steady Investor, we'll hope you'll be back next week. Sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. For John Blank, I'm Mark Vickery. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for?